the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Have others told you that you're worthless, ruined, ignorant, or deserving of the abuse you've received? These negative identities don't reflect the way God views you. Satan's goal is to smear damning deceptions into our souls and minds with accusation, guilt, and suffering. But our identity is not what happened to us. It's not the roles we fulfill, the things we do, or even what others think of us. Our identity is in who we are in Christ. When we came to the Lord and placed our lives in his hands, we receive a new identity. Jesus' death affords us a brand new position in life and in death. Not only are our sins wondrously forgiven because of the blood of Christ, but we are now the recipients of an incredible exchange that he made just for us. He takes away my old shameful and sinful nature and gives me a new one. Creates in me a whole new life, a new creature in Christ Jesus. Welcome to our ongoing Bible study series, The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords That Bind You. And hopefully you're following along in your copy of The Freedom Challenge as we're joined now by its author, Pastor Don Scott Damon. And Don, great to have you back on the show. It's wonderful to be back with you. I'm just so enjoying this dialogue that we're having, and I hope that the listeners are too. It's been a great time. Let's talk a bit about... um, the next phase of this discussion today in the Freedom Challenge, and, and that's one, well, a character, at least in my own head, that, that uh, at various and sundry times I've come to really loathe, that little voice that engages in all of the negative talk. And ironically, down through the years as we have been exposed to negative thinking or negative comments from others, it seems as if we kind of memorize that negative narrative, and then at an instant, the enemy is capable of bringing all of that back up in our minds. How do we go about controlling that nasty little voice inside of our heads? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's very powerful and a great question, because we are plagued by those voices, that inner critic or that naysayer or that that scolding voice. And First of all, I really do believe that oftentimes that is the enemy. He's known as the accuser of the brethren, and he's just accusing us night and day before God, but in our own thoughts, too. And then sometimes Satan doesn't even have to accuse us because we pick up right where he leads off, or we're that scolding parent or that bully on the playground, right where they left off, and we talk negatively about ourselves. So first of all, understand that that is not that is not what God wants us to do. In fact, we're we're really dishonoring God when we talk negative about ourselves or allow that voice to take residence in our brain. Um, because God made us to be perfect, and He created us in His image. And so, the first thing I like to do is just submit those thoughts. And and I guess before we can even do that, we have to recognize it, don't we, really, that we're having those thoughts. And so we talk about listening, learning, and then acting. 
listening to how we're talking to ourselves about ourselves, listening how we're talking to ourselves about other people, or how we're listening to ourselves about how we're talking about our circumstances or our future. And then we learn from that. What is, what is that conversation teaching us about our own self, about our out, outlook on life? And then we act. And that action is the powerful part where we submit those thoughts to the scrutiny of Scripture, allow God to take them captive and, and demolish them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because our thoughts sculpt our brain and our thoughts direct the course of our life. So it's very important to do this work. And this is something that I suppose at a level is kind of the the mixed blessing, so to speak, of the way our brains are wired. Um, We're taught at a very early age the alphabet numbers, multiplication mm-hmm. tables, things of this sort. And and ironically, even as we study that as a very young child, sometimes exposed, if our if our parents made the effort as the ages of two or three years old, um, and then certainly well instilled in our minds and memories by the time we reach first and second grade, and we take that with us for an entire lifetime. I'm wondering if part of the problem with negative experiences and abuse particularly when it happens at an early age, is it leaves an indelible print in the memory of our mind that, like the alphabet, becomes very difficult to forget. And I suppose afterwards, when we get into our adult years, the ability to call upon those memories, those negative, destructive thoughts, and play them back in our minds again is so easy. How do we, how do we balance that? How, how do we begin to break the, the grip, the cords that those kinds of memories have? Yeah, because that's our programming, isn't it? That's been programmed into our our mind. We've meditated on that. Every time we have a memory or a flashback or we think about that, that's meditation. A lot of times that that allows that memory to go even deeper into our conscious, certainly in our, our unconscious. But studies show that we can improve our brain by changing our thoughts. And I, I like to teach people, too, that sometimes we have to take what we're thinking or d- design our thinking by writing it down and speaking it out loud, which is why I, I wrote the Freedom Challenge, because I believe that we don't do enough of that, declaring with our mouth and allowing ourselves to begin to improve the vision that we have of ourselves and painting a beautiful picture of our future and how we see ourselves that we have to speak that out loud and we have to intentionally meditate on the truth of God's Word and then really visualize ourselves in that, um, visualizing when God says um, you're beloved and you're accepted, visualizing Dawn or Craig, you are beloved and you are accepted, seeing God in our, in our sanctified imaginations, if you will, seeing God speaking that over it, declaring that over us. And so we can really renew not just our memories, but the actual physical organ of the brain, because as I said a moment ago, our brain is being shaped physically. It is reacting, literally changing in response to the thoughts that run through our mind. 
So we really need to kind of replace that old thinking, that old imprint, with with a new form of thinking, with a new imprint. And and maybe that takes us to the reason why a verse like Philippians four eight is so important when we are exhorted that whatever is true, noble, right, lovely, admirable, those things which are excellent or praiseworthy, to think on these things, to to essentially go in and to replace the old thought patterns with new thought patterns. Mm-hmm. Absolutely true. And that, isn't it cool how God's Word tells us thousands of years ago how the brain works, and that is right. We don't want to, I think we talked about this one week before, we say, if I say, whatever you do, don't think about a pink elephant right now. <laughs> well, we know exactly what everybody just conjured up in their mind. And so trying to remove the negative thoughts somehow almost causes us to get in a fretful cycle of thinking about it even more. So we're going to put on the new mind. We're going to put on the, the thoughts that we want by directing our mind. And Colossians will say the same thing in Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above. And so that tells me that God says we have the power to make this decision. We have the capacity in, in our human ability but how much even more with the power of the Holy Spirit to direct our thinking. Now, that's a discipline, because our thoughts run through our mind over 50,000 thoughts, perhaps even a day, like traffic on a busy street, and they're just there. But what we get to do is decide, are we going to get in the car and ride with it, or are we going to just let it pass through and then begin to say out loud or repeat or meditate on whatever's pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, right, true, noble. And if we don't know what's right and true, then let's get our journal and let's get our Bible and let's write those things down so we can literally just read it off of a card while we are renewing our mind and reprogramming our mind. Our continuing series, The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords that Bind You. With us today is its author, Pastor Don Scott Damon. We've got a couple of copies of the book to give away on today's program. We'll tell you more about that coming up a little bit after the break. Meanwhile, we'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our discussion and our look at The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords that Bind You, with Pastor Don Scott Damon. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Craig Roberts along with Pastor Don Scott Damon. We're discussing, of course, our ongoing Bible study series, The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords that Bind You. A little bit later on in this segment, we'll tell you how you can win a copy of the book for yourself. But meanwhile, I want to come back to the conversation. And uh, Pastor Don, it's interesting. There's been a lot of research done in the arena of memory particularly as it relates to the impact of Alzheimer's. And for anyone that has had a family member impacted by this, you know that Alzheimer's typically um, steals the ability to retain current memory, but memories from long ago seem to be imprinted in a different area of the brain in a different fashion that uh, folks can continue to, to call them up many, many years later with as vivid detail as if it happened yesterday. So the Alzheimer's patient who might not 
remember what they had for breakfast, or might not recognize a relative, can nevertheless tell you stories about their childhood from 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And I'm wondering if part of that can be problematic in the sense that it's easier for us to call up early memories, and sadly, if those are memories of past failures, the ability of those past failures to haunt us today and to kind of stand as a roadblock in our ability to move forward can be terribly problematic. Yeah, boy, that's uh, an important topic that you're bringing up, and I think that is why it's so critically important to do this work that we're talking about, because we're not just talking about um, forgetting the memory, but we are talking about a process that weakens those neurotransmitters and strengthens new ones. And, you know, we know that our cells regenerate every couple of months. We know cells do hold memories, too. But if we can renew our thoughts, renew our transmitters, renew the cells, we have a, a better choice, uh, excuse me, a better, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Capacity. In which, yes, yeah, thank you, <laughs> results in the future and um, that that will not occur for us. Because I think sometimes we just stuffed things and we didn't do the hard work. We just tried to escape the memories instead of cleansing and purging the memories, processing them. So I think when the brain says, hey, this is still something that's not been processed. This is still something, you know, you, you tried to bury it, but I'm still here. And that is why I am a proponent for going back in through some of those painful memories, reframing them, talking through them, and allowing them to lose some of that energy and some of that power, like a, like a ball underwater that wants to pop up to the surface. We kind of diffuse that. And, and hopefully offset that in the future. And again, I think it's an important distinction. We're not suggesting that somehow you're going to be able to erase that memory, per se, Mm-mm. but to reframe it, as you say, to give it new context, to give it biblical clarity. So now all of a sudden, it's not the memory of the event, but rather how you relate to, think about, and how you allow it to impact your life, your way of thinking, your way of moving forward. That's really what we're focused on changing here. Yeah, that's beautiful, and that's exactly it. So now when that memory comes, it doesn't torment me, it doesn't hurt me. Yeah, I remember it as part of my experience, but perhaps what I do remember now is the beauty of it. Now maybe I remember the strength and what it brought to me and how I got through it. So that's the that's what reframing does, and that's why putting that new memory in its place can do for us. So imperative to do that. You talk in the book, and I think it's important to touch on this, because oftentimes as we relate to negative experiences earlier on in life and when we have coping mechanisms that are not rooted in Scripture but rather rooted in the flesh, we sometimes will do things like rationalization, for example, so that you've gone through a bad experience, now you're trying to deal with it, it sometimes will drive about bad behavior or inappropriate behavior that we will therefore rationalize by saying, well, I deserve this, or this is the way I am, things of that sort. How do we shortcut that rationalization process? Rationalization, yeah, helping us justify unhealthy or sinful behaviors, and certainly a defense mechanism. And again, we have to line up our thoughts with the Word of God. 
And that means that we're willing to change and make difficult lifestyle changes, change the way, again, we talk about reframing, being willing to acknowledge instead of making excuses or shirking our responsibility or wanting to blame someone else, but being willing to acknowledge, you know, this is my stuff and I need to deal with it. We've all seen that person that just cannot allow themselves to acknowledge their part in in a broken relationship or admit that they did something wrong and say they're sorry. That rationalization is so deeply rooted often. And really, isn't that just a smokescreen from, you know, um, facing the truth about myself? And if I don't want to face the truth, that means I'm bound by fear that I'm not going to be enough or I'm not going to be loved or I'm going to be rejected. So this goes into the core fears that many of us have. But if I'm willing to give up rationalization and reject that and say, you know what, I am making excuses and and my subconscious, my unconscious knows it's not true and I can't live in harmony and peace and balance when I know I'm lying to myself. I just have to lay this before the Lord and once again take this thought, this perspective captive and submit it to the scrutiny of God's Word and say, what does God's Word say about that? And, it, and it's a humbling experience. You, you have to, you know what, just allow yourself to be broken. I don't have to fear the truth because if I face the truth, I will grow and I will be changed and I'll be set free from this thing that I think we're running from oftentimes. Now, there's an aspect of this, though, that can sometimes trip people up, and that is that as they're facing the truth, they sometimes will get stuck. They'll get stuck dwelling on guilt, on shame. They hear that the booming sound of the voice of doom uh, that is constantly reminding us of the negative things. And so uh, how, how, how vigilant do we need to be in responding to that kind of negative self-talk when we, when we face the truth, but they can get stuck thinking about the consequences of what we've been through and, and getting caught up on that treadmill, we'll call it, of shame and guilt? Mm-hmm. Well, remember, Jesus came with truth and grace. The Bible says, and so if we're really facing the truth, capital T, if we're facing Jesus and what he says, then that truth is not going to condemn us, but that truth is going to liberate us. And so don't do this introspection by yourself. Do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, David said in the Bible, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Turn your searchlight on in me, God. And so we want to face the truth with the truth himself, Jesus Christ, and know that there's grace for that if we're feeling overwhelmed or guilt or shame. Now, we're not really partnered up with truth with Jesus. We're we're partnered up with the enemy. And so he, he has a way of ripping the tape off, if you will, and allowing us to see and then whisper his condemning voice into our ears, look at what you did. So if you're feeling that or hearing that, then you can know that the presence of the enemy is around. Instead, we say, Holy Spirit, um, I cover myself right now with the blood of Jesus Christ, and I invite you into this process with me. Will you reveal to me the truth with your grace and your love? And that just draws us to God. That draws us to that that help. It draws us to, uh, we break out of, you know, 
the freezing and pleasing and fight and flight, and we and we uh, we allow the Lord to do that work. It feels so good in our heart to know that, um, man, I can get vulnerable. You know, I can strip down from my image, and I can stand before you and feel no shame. Psalm 139, David, once again, he said, you know me, you search me, you see me, and yet at the end of that chapter, he says, I am wonderfully and fearfully made. How does he make that declaration? You know, God sees everything about us, and at the end, we can say, I'm wonderful. I'm awesome up in here. (laughs) And it really, at the end of the day, takes a a sense of consistent response to this, almost practice, I'll call it. Uh, Dawn, I wonder if that's appropriate, because let's face it, the the enemy has had uh, millennia of practice at this. And and for us to be able to, uh, again, break off of that treadmill, uh, to be able to shut down that voice of victimization that often comes in accusatory toward us. It, 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 people say, well, I tried it one time, and, and uh, boy, I didn't feel very good. You really have to practice at this, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good word. It's, it is practice. It is renewing the mind, reprogramming the mind, replacing the negative, and it's not a one-off. It's not a one-and-done you know, and it's it's making it habitual, it's making a habit, it's making a routine that, you know, I'm going to replace these thoughts. When this thought comes up, I'm going to do this instead. I know this morning I was getting ready, and I keep my tennis shoes by my bed, and so after, and my Bible's right there, so my thing is, you know, I'm reading my Bible, and then after I say amen, my tennis shoes are staring at me. So I put things in front of me that remind me that this is what I'm going to do next. If I'm replacing thoughts, I put sticky notes around my mirror and on my dresser and where I'm going to be that remind me. And when I get negative cues, I've taken those negative cues and say, you know what, Um, boy, there's certain words, Craig, that when I hear they hurl me back kind of into my abuse. And I've taken those words and I've defanged them, if you will, and I've created new cues. So now when I hear that word, I I do this instead of doing that, instead of cringing and gritting my teeth. Now I look up and I go, Jesus, you're so good. And now it's an automatic cue. So doing those things consistently, do I always do it? No. Do sometimes I get stuck again in victimization? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to stay there. I don't want to live there. I want to be free. So get out of that place. And if you fail once, fails, it's an event, not a person. Move on and keep, keep working, keep practicing. Absolutely. Keep working the work. The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords that Bind You. Now, the book, newly published by Redemption Press. You can order it, by the way, online at redemption-press.com. We've got a couple of copies to give away right now. Uh, Tell you what, we're going to give away one regular book. We have a second copy that we'll give away that's a signed edition along with a hot pink silicone bracelet that says, I'm a freedom girl on one side and no more cords on the other. We'll give that away to callers number 11 and 12 right now at 888 That's callers 11 and 12 at 888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords that Bind You with author and pastor Don Scott Damon. Pastor, we'll look forward to our visit again next week. I can't wait. We'll see you then. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Certainly makes sense from a perspective of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, um, if we're in this love relationship with the Lord and he has redeemed us, as we share that good news with others, don't we want to be, uh, don't we want to be articulate about um, what he's done in our life? and how we can change somebody else's life too. While certainly that's the desire, I think a lot of people when it comes to the matter of of sharing their faith or evangelism get nervous. They get nervous because oftentimes we are afraid that somebody is going to ask us a question that we can't give an answer for. Oftentimes this goes to the heart of the question as to whether or not we are ready to give that answer for the hope that lies within. A brand new book out that uh, helps give some insight to some of the bigger questions and uh, appropriate answers to same, written by Mark Middleberg. The book is called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And Mark, great to have you on the show tonight. Great to be with you. I have to wonder, we look at some of these questions here, you know, what makes you sure that God exists? How can we trust the Bible? Uh, Wasn't Jesus just a good uh, man and teacher? Uh, Are are very common questions, to be sure. And one would think questions that at the base every Christian would feel comfortable in answering. But obviously, a book like yours suggests that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, you know, in a perfect world, I guess we should. But the the real truth is a lot of us uh, grew up with, Christian faith. Our parents taught us as we were young, which is great, but when you're raised kind of on VBS and Sunday school and this is, you know, being taught that this is true your whole life, and, and if you're mostly around Christians, then later when someone really looks you in the eye and says, yeah, but how do you know? And, you know, you believe the Bible, it's full of contradictions, it's based on myths, it's, you know, how can you accept that? Well, a lot of us quite naturally feel intimidated by that because we just haven't prepared ourselves for that. So that's really the spirit of this book is to say, these are the questions we're afraid of. This is based on a national survey we did about a year and a half ago that summer. We asked a thousand Christians, you know, what are the issues that you hope will not come up when you're in a conversation with a non-Christian? And these are the top 10 questions that came up. So let's get ready because If we feel ready, then we're much more willing to get into those conversations and much more likely to be used by God. Now, for many years, you served as evangelism director at Willow Creek Community Church there in Chicago. Um, As you spoke with folks that were coming through your program, uh, there seemed to be a commonality um, over intimidation by some of these questions. And I'm wondering how much of that might have gone to, as you suggest, maybe a sense of Christian isolationism where we really don't know the answer to these questions because we've never been asked them. Uh, and then to maybe to a level of just simple biblical illiteracy where a lot of folks are just not that familiar with Scripture enough to feel comfortable in in, in speaking to some of these questions. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I think... Uh... Again, I think sometimes as churches, we're a lot better at teaching, especially young people, teaching them what to believe but not why it's true. And so a lot of young people grow up learning the creeds, learning Bible verses, uh, being able to kind of parrot back the right answers. But again, I think in the training, and I'm a real advocate even in Sunday school classes, where we say, okay, let's let's role play here a little. I used to do this when I was a high school Sunday school teacher. I'd say, for the next half hour, I'm going to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, or I'm going to be a strong, you know, kind of atheistic evolutionist, and I'm going to challenge your ideas. 
and, and at first it freaked the kids out, but then they, they really took to it because they, they realized, well, wait a minute, we have answers to these things. And so I think we just need to really force ourselves to think more and get more ready because truth is on our side. We, we don't have to be afraid of these things, but we do, as, as the verse you quoted, First uh, Peter 3.15, we do need to get prepared. There's a couple of issues here at hand, too, I think. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, Norman Geisler was on the program, and we spent some time talking about what at the time was an increase in, in how should I phrase this, a, a debate, really, over whether or not it was necessary as a Christian to believe in a, a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or whether or not that could have been simply a figurative event. And it was amazing to me the number of people that called into our program that night that felt as if, you know, whether or not it was a literal resurrection or a figurative one really didn't matter if at the core, you know, you kind of got the message. And and it it was a a very big eye-opener for me in understanding that there oftentimes is a gulf of ignorance uh, between what we believe and even going down to the core of why we believe it. Do you think that's true? I think it's very true, and I've been in Bible studies with all church people, evangelicals, who didn't believe in the Trinity or who thought they believed in it but would articulate it in a, in a way that was actually cultic. And so, again, I, my my mission is not to shame all these people. My mission is to say we just need to do a little more preparation. Uh, let's be honest, we need to do a lot more preparation. And this, Mark, I, I should hasten to add, is not just simply for the sake of more effective outreach and evangelism, but ultimately for deepening of our own walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it would seem to me um, it would be important for every believer to know why they are sure that God exists. Absolutely. I, I think all of these questions first speak to our own confidence and clarity as Christians, especially, again, young people who are going to go away you know, go away to the university or college and have their faith challenged. And so we've got to equip them in particular, but really all of us. And then the second half is then we're going to be much more able to boldly and confidently and clearly articulate the message and explain to our non-Christian friends how they can know that it's true as well. So very much a double-edged sword cutting both ways, both in terms of being able to deepen our own faith walk and understanding and relationship with Jesus Christ, and then secondarily, once having been equipped with that information, being more effective toward giving that, uh, well, as we said earlier, that answer for the hope that lies within. Our conversation today with Mark Middleberg, a look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask. We'll come to some of those questions as our conversation continues right here on KFAS. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mark Middleberg, my guest tonight. He is a former evangelism director of Willow Creek Community Church. His new book, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. As you engaged in this survey, Mark, and I think all of these questions that you outline and detailed answers inside the pages of your new book are all vital ones. Which one would you say, though, that tended to come up the most? Well, and by the way, I need to apologize. I'm just getting over laryngitis. Not, Not a problem. I'm operating with half of my voice uh, cut off here, but uh, the the very 
very first question we addressed in the book was one of the top two on the survey, and that is, how do you know God exists? You can't see him, feel him, hear him. You know, he's not a physical being, and yet you're kind of staking your life and eternity on belief in him. Why do you do that? And, you know, I think as Christians, again, a lot of us grew up knowing God, believing in God, experiencing God, worshiping God. It's just a normal part of what we believe and know to be true. And yet, when someone says it like that, it's very intimidating. And, like, well, I don't know how to prove it to someone else. And so... I addressed that one very first. That's chapter one in the book, which, by the way, I I can give a website later where people can read that first chapter for free. Why don't you do that right now, Mark? Okay, it's it's thequestionswithanswers.com. Thequestionswithanswers.com. Right, and we've got uh, Lee Strobel did the foreword, that's there, and then the introduction, and then this first chapter, which is, you know, how do you know God exists? You can't see, feel, hear, or touch him. Let's, let's address that question. How do we know that God exists? If you can't reach out and physically touch him, and you're talking with someone who says, look, you know, God gets the blame for a lot of stuff. I just don't know that there's any evidence that God actually exists. Yeah. Well, it's a great question. And the first thing I say is don't ignore or discount your experience. Um, as a Christian, I grew up being taught this uh, as I grew up, but God is very real to me, and uh, I think anyone who's really walking with Jesus is able to talk about, you know, ways he is real to them, ways he has led them, protected them, redirected them, even even when he convicts us of being in the wrong or of sin. That is God's activity in our lives. So first thing I say is talk about that openly and boldly, because it's real. But... If you just stop there, the average non-Christian is going to go, okay, well, that's experience, but you know, I need evidence. Well, I give two scientific arguments and then one that's more, maybe a little more philosophical. But uh, the first thing I talk about in the chapter is the existence of the universe. And I, I'm telling you, this has always been a good argument, but in the last 20, 30 years, science has reinforced this one in a huge way. And the basic argument is this. First of all, whatever begins to exist has a cause. In other words, things don't pop into existence on their own. So whatever has a beginning has a cause. Second part of the argument says the universe had a beginning. And the beauty of this, again, is virtually every scientist now believes in some version of the Big Bang theory, that it, you know, at a point, you know, a finite point in time, there was a huge explosion at which everything that we call the universe came out of an infinitesimal point. And scientists believe this. And, and I do too, and I think Genesis 1-1 describes it. But they, they think it's a natural event. I just say it's a, a scientific description of a miracle. And so the universe did have a beginning. But then the third part of the argument is whatever had a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had to have a cause outside of it, a cause that is great enough to produce it, smart enough to produce it, powerful enough to produce it, old enough to be there to produce it, and artistic enough to make it as wonderful as it is. Well, I'm telling you, that's the God of the Bible. And that's, you know, science and philosophy point to this, you know, powerful reality that there is a God that is beyond all of this who created it. 
One of the other frequent questions that come up is dealing with the issue of the Bible. Now, of course, typically as Christians, we rely on the Scripture as the source of which we use for good, solid apologetics, as well we should. To the person who says, but wait a minute, the Bible was written by men, it's wrought with all kinds of contradictions and errors and mistakes, how or why should we trust the Bible? Again, a question that is very intimidating to a lot of Christians right up front, because they've always accepted it. And that they're often tempted to just say, well, it says right here in Second Timothy that the Bible is inspired, it's the Word of God, it's you know, profitable for correction and teaching, etc., etc. And I agree with that. I agree with that verse, but that's not how you're going to prove it to your non-Christian friends. They're going to say, that's just circular reasoning. You're just using the book I'm questioning to try to prove it. You can't do that. So what? What first thing I like to do, Craig, is when someone says, you know, it's so full of contradictions, you can't trust it. I just like to look at them and say, you know, contradictions bother me too, but I'm just curious, what are your top two or three? And I'm telling you, it's usually as silent as what we just experienced. Because most people kind of parrot a cliche that they've heard, and that is that the Bible's full of contradictions, and they haven't even looked into it, they haven't read it for themselves, they have no idea. And you ask them what are their top two or three contradictions that bother them the most, they don't even have anything to say. And when that happens, which is the majority of the time, I'd like to then say, well, listen, before you start criticizing and writing off the book that has changed the lives of millions or really billions of people, you owe it to yourself to read it for yourself and look at it because you're going to find out it is true and it speaks to your heart, it speaks to your deepest needs. But now some people will say, well, you know, there's contradictions there. Uh, you know, some of the Gospels say that there was an angel at the tomb. And then other Gospels say there were two angels at the tomb. And so you can't have, you know, it's either one or two, that's a contradiction. I can't trust a book that, you know, where the guys can't even count angels. When we run into those kind, and by the way, that's the nature of most of what people call contradictions. And what I point out there, and I, this is what I talk about in the chapter, in the questions Christians hope no one will ask, I explain that the nature of eyewitness testimony is that it's always incomplete. Uh, I live in Colorado. I'm looking out my window. I can very honestly say there is a pine tree out there. But, Craig, if you were sitting there, you may look out and say, what do you mean there's a pine tree? There's about a 1,000 pine trees out there. Well, we're both right. See, I didn't say there's only one pine tree. I just mentioned one of the pine trees I'm looking at. And so I gave less than full detail. You said there was a 1,000, and you're right, too. But in reality, there's a lot more than a 1,000 because I live in the middle of the woods. So those are just incomplete levels of information. And so going back to the Bible, one gospel writer mentions an angel. He didn't say there's only one. He just mentioned that there was an angel. Then one of the other writers mentions how many there were. He says there were two. And as one person says, you know, here's a mathematical formula that's helpful. Wherever there's two, there's also one. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's, that's a good perspective. And, you know, the, the other issue here that I think can, can give us all a sense of a sigh of relief, initially you think in a topic like this that it means that we have to get into to deep concentration and study and pull out the thesaurus and the concordances and spend hours on the Internet doing research so that we can memorize all these details and data. But as you heard in those two 
exemplary uh, questions and answers that it's really fairly basic. It's not that hard or involved if you know where to look and what to share. A look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask with answers. And as Mark mentions, if you'd like to read the first chapter online, you can do so for free. Go to thequestionswithanswers.com. That's thequestionswithanswers.com. And Mark Middleberg, thanks so much for the time. It's a great book and one that's an easy read and yet I believe a very important read for all Christians who want to not just deepen your own understanding and knowledge of the Scripture, but also how to better improve your ability at sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.